Well, good noon, as we say uh, here in London, and I'm delighted to have as our guest today, Andrew Burnett, CBE. Andrew is a dear colleague whom I met via Gresham College, and Andrew is here today to talk about what did the Romans ever have to teach us about money. Uh, you've read his biography, he's a numismatist, uh, <laughs> numismatist uh, museums and institutions professional, but one of his great, great uh, subjects is Roman uh, coinage. So never say that FS Club doesn't bring you the very latest in news from 753 uh, BC, or as they say in Latin, ab urbe condita, from the founding of the city. Uh, now you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli, I'm one of the directors of Zen, and it is always a pleasure to be able to introduce these webinars uh, because we range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today may seem a bit quirky to some of our sponsors that, wh where are they going with this one? But actually, it is intriguing how many of the things in finance date back an extremely long time. Uh, many of you will know that we brought out uh, an eternal coin in long finance some 17 years ago as a bit of a thought piece. But we also brought out a Gresham coin a few years ago on publication of Gresham's Law by uh, John Guy. And in the case of Gresham's Law, of course, although it's attributed to Thomas Gresham, who lived from 1519 to 1579, in reality, uh, it goes back, and the oldest that we can date it in writing is to Aristophanes the Frogs, uh, approximately the 8th century BC. So many of these things go around and come around again, and that might include things in today's discussion like Bitcoin. Now, just to remind you of the program, uh, Andrew will be speaking for about 20 minutes. My job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible, but I will make three points if I may. Uh, firstly, uh, the slides are there and posted, and you can see them. Secondly, yes, this is being recorded, and the recording will be up in approximately two working days, i.e. sometime around midday on Friday, for you to share with friends, fr family, and colleagues over the weekend, of course. Uh, and then finally, uh, the idea here is to have a discussion because I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions, I do. Uh, please feed those questions into the chat room, use the GoToWebinar facility. I'm here with you, not on email or uh, Signal or, or WhatsApp. I'll feed them in, I'll feed them into the conversation with Andrew. If there's too many questions or a question of great detail, your email is attached. And Andrew will be getting all of the emails uh, from, from you uh, if you wanted to contact him directly about something. Anyway, uh, as I say, my job is to get out of the way, but before I do so, we just thought a small poll question for you uh, might be of some fun. Now, I've given you a hint as to why 753 BC is up there. Uh, it is you know, from the founding of Rome, but roughly, when did coinage first emerge in Rome? Was it 753 BC, the coin itself defined the city? Was it 510, 300, 107? Was it in 37, the time of Julius Caesar? We are collecting the responses now. As I warned you, Andrew, we have a very opinionated audience out there, and over half of them have answered. So I'll leave it open for just a few more seconds as we get ourselves up to the three-quarter mark. And I'll be closing the poll in just a moment and presenting the results. Well, Andrew, here they are. Um, so the majority, well, not the majority, but 48%, uh, almost the majority, uh, if this is a Brexit vote, uh, believe that it was 510 BC. So we're going to hand back to you. The floor is yours, but Andrew, what is the right answer? Well, thanks a lot, uh, Michael, and uh, good, uh, good, good afternoon to everybody. Well, the correct answer is actually about 300 uh, BC, but I'm impressed many people chose 510, which of course was the end of the 
king kingship period in Rome when they established democracy. So that could have been another interesting date. Uh, and indeed, 300 is uh, an interesting is an important date because it, it's when Rome really starts interacting with the rest of the Mediterranean world and, and starts you know, conquering Italy, Spain, and ultimately the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and that's really why they adopted um, coinage at that time because they then joined, as it were, the then international world of the Mediterranean. So today I'm going to talk about what did the Romans ever have to teach us about money, and uh, the answer I think will be well. I already do part of the part of the answer today in the 20 minutes we've got will be they have quite a lot to teach us about it, but of course, as ever, the lessons of history have often been forgotten. So although they taught us much, um, I'm afraid to say people don't often uh, remember uh, what they might. So put the next slide, please. The talk I'm going to give is going to be in four parts, one about words used for money, secondly about the quantity theory of money, uh, the modern resonance with QE and inflation, third, dealing with inflation, we're now quite a hot topic of course for, for all of us, uh, and fourthly a, a, a glance at our particular local bit of the Roman Empire, Roman Britain, and what changed when the Romans came here in AD 43. So next, please. So we'll start with um, a few words. But the word money itself actually comes from the Latin uh, moneta, uh, which uh, didn't mean money um, originally. It meant the Roman mint. Uh, it meant mint. And, and the Roman mint was uh, situated, um, as you can see in the slide, in the center of Rome. Um, and only later did, uh, did the word come to mean the product of the mint, i.e. money itself. The Roman uh, mint was in the temple of Juno Moneta, Juno of Moneta, which for those of you who know Rome, you can see in the picture on the left, that white building, the monument of Victor Emmanuel, it's just in front of the right-hand end. And if you look at the, the plan, you can sort of see it towards the top marked on the plan. Uh, the other important building to note is number nine, the Temple of Saturn, uh, which again you can just see the, from the picture, the bottom right, that little row of columns, and that was where the Roman treasury was located, so the mint was located near to um, the treasury. So the, the, the mint, the word money comes from moneta, which comes from the mint, which was on the Capitoline Hill, Temple of Juno Moneta. Next please. Next, so why why was it uh, in the Temple of Juno Moneta? Um, well, uh, we can see it being celebrated here on this uh, on this uh, on this coin, uh, made in time Julius Caesar, where we've got the head on the left, labelled for those of you who can read coins, Moneta, head of Juno Moneta, the goddess next to whose temple the mint was located, uh, and on 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 the uh, and uh, and we can wonder why. Um, why Juno Moneta was the patroness of coinage. What does Moneta mean originally? Well, uh, of course, I'm glad to say there's a good scholarly dispute on the matter. The word perhaps means warning, uh, and indeed the, it's supposed that some geese uh, warned the Romans that a Gallic attack was about to take place in 390 BC, um, which is why the temple acquired that name. And other theories link it to the Greek goddess of, mem of memory, uh, or words like memorialize. Next. 
another word, LSD, um, you probably all know this, um, which of course fell out of date really with decimalizations 50 years ago. LSD, pounds, shillings, pence. L for libra, S for solidy, D for denarii. Um, names of Roman uh, coin, the coin names which persisted after the Roman Empire into the Middle Ages and then till the modern uh, modern period. Next, please. Now let's look a bit at the Romans' money, uh, Romans, Romans' money itself. So here's a slide showing the range of coins that were produced as it happens in this case under the Emperor Nero, a gold coin, a silver coin, and a range of base metal coins made of brass, copper, or bronze uh, you can see below. Next, please. So what were they all worth? Well, you can see the gold coin uh, at uh, quite a high value, although it's notoriously difficult um, to give uh, modern equivalences to ancient uh, values because, you know, things cost different, different amounts. Manufacturing goods, for example, manufactured goods were much relatively much more expensive because it was made by hand and then machines and so on and so forth. But you can see there's a range of uh, values, probably about a thousand, and this slide down to about two pounds, and indeed there are smaller ones as well, down to about 50 pence in, in, in modern, modern, modern money. So a good range of uh, coinage could be used for a wide range of um, activities and transactions. So I want to, to, to talk here to the next slide about one of the interesting theories, which again has modern resonance, the so-called quantity theory of, of, of money, um, which as I say resonates today with quantitative easing. So we know, recognize a law called Baudin's law, I've named after Jean Baudin, who was a humanist in France in the 16th century, who was very struck by the rise in prices, uh, which was attributed at the time to the rise in the amount of coinage available in Europe, which of course was fueled in turn by the discoveries of precious metal uh, in the Americas, exploited particularly by the um, Spanish. Now Jean Baudin uh, wrote about this, uh, and it's very interesting. If you actually read his book, which of course nobody does now, printed in originally 1568, sorry for the typo on the slide, um, you can find that although he'd noted the problem, it was to the classical sources of, of Roman history that he turned to try and explain it. Uh, and, and indeed, he found various um, various citations in ancient literature, of which I've put uh, two on the screen. One, a letter from the um, Roman uh, orator Cicero. Um, when there was a shortage of coin, uh, the value of properties have got, has gone down. Less money, prices are lower. And the converse, in Suetonius' life of Augustus, when the Emperor Augustus eventually conquered Mark Antony and Cleopatra and captured Egypt. Egypt was fabulously wealthy. And he brought all the wealth of Egypt back to Rome. Uh, and as Suetonius says, uh, he, he made money so plentiful, the rate of interest fell and the price of land rose greatly. So there's a, clearly an awareness in these ancient authors of the relationship between the amount of money and the level of prices. Although it, it all began then, of course, it uh, was discovered first of all by Jean Baudin, then by, as you know, discussed by many modern uh, economists, and I'm sure you will know that much better than me, Irving Fisher being uh, a notable one amongst them. Next, please. 
So related to um, the increase of prices, the increase of, of money, is of course uh, inflation. Uh, and again, you'll be uh, not surprised to discover there's a, an animated scholarly discussion about what happened with inflation in the Roman world. And you can see a few views um, which have been expressed, summarized on, on this uh, slide. Um, it, there does generally seem to be a gradual increase in, um, in prices over the first 300 years of the Roman Empire, uh, which reflects a change in the use of the coins from, from some of the smallest ones as the most common one used and indeed lost and found today and slightly bigger ones. But uh, a more particular interest, is, it, 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 which we'll come back to in a second, is mentioned at the bottom, the huge leap in price levels from around about AD 270. Next, next please. Now, of course, everything about studying inflation in the past is very, uh, is very contentious. How do you actually measure that inflation? People typically have used the price of wheat, bottom right, but of course that is very um, subject to all sorts of fluctuations, weather, supply, warfare, as indeed we know currently. Um, its value is that um, we have prices for wheat much more frequently than any other objects. But if you look at other objects such as um, um, donkeys and wheat and so on, summarized this slide, you can see the pattern is slightly different. Nevertheless, there is a general trend upwards um, which, which seems quite clear. And then, as I say, although it's not shown on the slide, from about 300, there's a very steep um, incline. Next, please. And this is generally attributed to the decline in the silver content of the coinage, which is shown on this graph from 100% in AD 1 to about nothing by AD 300. And a particularly steep decline, as you can see, coinciding in about 260, 270 AD, just about the time of the then rampant inflation that began um, in the Roman um, Empire. So there does seem to be a link between the debasement of coinage and hence presumably the production of more and more coins and increase in money and the increase in prices at the time. Next, please. What happened then is a complete change in the Roman monetary system that the uh, coins stopped being having a fixed relationship to each other as they had before, you know, one pound is 100 pence, one dollar is 100 cents, and so on and so forth. In the early Roman period, one, uh, one denarius was worth four sesterci and, uh, and 16 asses. But this system stopped in about 300, and the price of the, the value of the gold coin started to float uh, against upwards against the um, bronze coinage. Uh, and you can see on the right the extraordinary increase in, in value caused by this where the, the, the gold coin was about a, a thousand denarii in AD 300 in less than a hundred years became um, something like 400 times um, less valuable, an enormous compound rate of inflation. But this of course is is money uh, inflation, not, uh, not, not price inflation. So it was a real problem then, and the Roman emperors were very aware of it, and they, and, and they thought they should try and do something about it. So what did they try and do? Next, please. 
Well, the Roman emperor, to one example, Diocletian, famously tried to address the problem. Next, please. And he did it by uh, publishing an enormous set of inscriptions all around the empire, uh, giving the maximum price permitted for all sorts of things. And you can see an example here of various, uh, various horses and the maximum price allowed for, the, for them was. This is an example of the surviving inscription. Next, please. And uh, covered a whole range of uh, things, as you can see. Something like over a thousand items were specified. And if we look at what he thought he was doing, next, please. You can see um, on the preamble from his edict, um, the, um, the very sort of emotional language to use about how how important it was to um, get rid of this terrible uh, evil of inflation, which was wrecking society. And I think it's no accident that uh, it, uh, the language used by Diocletian very much uh, is echoed by the language used in the debates 50 years ago in the 1970s, in, in, in when, when the Heath government introduced price and wage, notoriously introduced price uh, and wage and control. Uh, Lord Jellico, the Lord Privy Seal, as you can see in the House of Lords, is, is talking about how not only the economy will be crippled, but democracy will also uh, be eroded. Well, surprise, surprise, um, Diocletian's attempt to control prices uh, and the, the Heath governments uh, both failed. Next, please. Uh, and again, the parallels between the two are quite similar. One of uh, Diocletian's great critics, Lactantius, who, who, who hated Diocletian because he was one of the last Roman emperors to persecute the Christians. Um, he's a very negative view of everything, but as he says, he, although he induced this, uh, this law, in the end, having proved destructive, it was merely uh, annulled. And again, it's quite amusing to see the echoes of this in the debates in the 1970 in the British Parliament, uh, and indeed Lord Robbins, one of the uh, opposition uh, peers, and cites the futility of Diocletian's example himself. Next, please. So just briefly towards the end, just say a few words about what the Romans did for Britain uh, when they invaded it. They invaded in AD 43, enough to campaign. The Emperor Claudius, shown on the right, set up a triumphal arch, which doesn't survive, but parts of inscription do. And as soon as the Romans came in, they introduced a very developed and sophisticated financial and legal system, which hadn't existed before in Britain, but existed in other parts of the empire. And we could see it in a number of ways. Next. For example, the recent discoveries at the Bloomberg site, which I hope people have been to visit, um, the Bloomberg site with its wonderful Mithraeum, these brilliant uh, uh, reading by experts of some of these wooden uh, tablets, which originally were coated with wax. And, they, and you can just about read the letters which have been inscribed through on the wood and have been deciphered. Some of the earliest ones, next please, are, are, are financial documents. And here's one, AD 57, only about 10 years after the uh, invasion of Britain. And already we can see quite a developed monetary system um, is in use. Um, and we know that uh, from the archaeological evidence too, Next, please. That uh, a whole range of 
where small monetary transactions could now take place because uh, some of the very smallest coins worth very little, roughly 50p, have been found um, extensively um, in Britain. And here's an example from Oxfordshire. And if we look at the next slide, we can see, thanks to this wonderful system, the Portal Antiquities Scheme, which introduced about 10, 15 years ago, such finds are made all over the country. So we can see that as soon as the Romans arrive, they introduce um, a sophisticated uh, and complicated um, uh, uh, system of, um, of, 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 of monetary transactions, replacing much more primitive, we assume, systems that existed before. But of course, the new source system brought its own dangers. Next, please. And one of those dangers was uh, forgery. And uh, sticking to the vicinity of bank, this very interesting hoard was found in St. Swithin's Lanes, but some 200 years ago. Uh, and both these coins, as you can see, depict the Emperor Claudius and his triumphal arch for conquering the Britons. But the one at the bottom, which the one at the bottom is not part of the hoard, but you can see it's a solid silver coin. The one at the top, as you can see, it's got a silver plating over a copper coin where you can see it's silver plating is coming off on the head of the emperor and indeed off parts of the uh, triumphal arch on the back. Uh, and this hoard had at least 89, probably about 100 um, similar fake coins in it. Uh, and down to the latest date of AD 51. So it shows that yeah, no sooner had the Romans suddenly introduced their um, financial system that uh, people started um, faking um, coins. And uh, uh, so, yeah, fraud, fraud was, never, was never far away. So next, please. So what do the Romans ever have to teach about us? Well, as I say, I think uh, quite a lot even though you know, they didn't, uh, people haven't listened much today to what they had to say about it, but I'm glad, very grateful to you all for listening to what I've said this morning. Thank you. Andrew, that was superb. Thank you so much. And uh, also you kept brilliantly to time, which allows us a lot of time for questions. Um, we've got quite a few people online, so please do type your questions in quickly or comments or observations so that I can feed them in. Um, I was also pleased that you uh, made a pitch for the Mithraeum. Uh, both St. Swithin's Lane is actually just behind me, right there. That that yeah. window is St. Swithin's Lane, and the Mithraeum is about another 100 yards further on. Uh, it's a wonderful exhibition under the Bloomberg Building, and you can book it free online and go and see some of this. Um, Andrew, just to kick off quickly, um, you, that, that very precipitous slide on silver was particularly interesting to me. Um, you know, went nearly to zero in 300 AD. Yeah. But um, what what was what was in the coin? <laughs> what, was it copper, or how did they manage to handle that? Yeah, they they uh, I mean initially made out of more or less pure silver. I mean Roman silver was actually originally finer than British. You know, sterling silver is not pure silver; it's only 92% fine. Whereas the Romans began with 100, and it gradually declined until by adding, as you say increasing amounts of uh, copper and indeed the much cheaper metal lead um, until by, by, by the end by the end of the third century uh, as we saw there's almost no silver in them. They did have this technique though of sort of what we call silver washing and they produce a base metal coin and then and then they'd uh, increase the silver on the surface so it looked much more silver 
um, than it uh, than it actually was. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an intriguing bit. The debasement of coinage, which happens everywhere. Again, you know, Aristophanes talks about it because it's that is the opposite of Gresham's law. You know, good money drives out bad unless they're forced to same. Uh, bad money drives out good unless they're forced to exchange for the same price. Um, now, uh, lots of questions here. Let's get cracking. Um, Hugh Purser is curious: Was early coinage very limited to a small strata of society, and if so, how small? Well, it depends on what you mean by early coinage. I mean, the very earliest coins in the West, uh, which were made in, in, in what's now modern Turkey, Western Asia Minor, in about uh, 700 BC, were made of a, of, 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 of a curious alloy of gold and silver called electrum. Um, and uh, we, we don't know exactly how widely they were used, but clearly it's got some sort of precious, uh, precious metal element suggesting that it would only be used for slightly higher transactions in that sense probably not um, widely used although again modern archaeological techniques have been recent years discovered more as it were small coins some of these coins are very uh, tiny suggesting that maybe they did have a slightly greater um, impact on the monetary world at the time than expected but um, we, we, we don't really know and of course you know we forget that the you know the ancient world was predicated on slavery. At least forty percent of the population were slaves, and they likely had nothing to do with money. So um, it would only it would only be yeah, in, in the sort of uh, the wealthier classes, I think. It's interesting uh, as well how how ubiquitous it was because I remember going to purchase a Roman coin uh, ah. just just off of uh, off of the Strand. And I was surprised how cheap it was. Uh, it wasn't yeah, really yeah. the. There were quite a few of them. You know, you. In in my you, I mean, I've never collected, but you could you you could collect coins for less than a pound pound in the old days, and even nowadays, if you're if anybody has any grandchildren or children they want to get going, you can buy a perfectly decent coin for less than ten pounds nowadays. Um, I mean, really, because so many have been found. Yeah. Uh, Dabe Carroll is curious, uh, how did the Romans vary the amount of currency they created, and was it mainly or solely linked to the availability of silver? Uh, and Paul Taffender has a related question, I think. He, he thanks you for a great presentation. Uh, but you mentioned quantitative easing. How did the Romans print money other than capturing treasures in war? Well, uh, like, like many things I've said, I mean, there's certain amount of dispute about all, all these things um some some of the some of the coinage was made from freshly metal uh, freshly mined metal uh, and indeed the great supplies of uh, silver in the ancient world seem to have been in spain the rio tinto mines um other other amounts were as you as one of your uh, questions questioners implied um gathered from um the spoils of war you defeat you know, people in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, and you capture their wealth like Augustus did with the uh, the wealth of uh, Egypt. Uh, and indeed, there is a, a gradual trend of wealth away from what was previously the Eastern lands of the Mediterranean towards the center, um, because that's where the center of power is, and that's where the, the, the money comes from. So um, sources such as uh, booty and fresh metal, um were very important but also um recycling um the the money i mean uh, uh, the uh, 
the particular focus of the Roman minting was indeed on the army, and you had to have enough coinage around to pay the army if you were the emperor, or else you'd be in trouble, considerably trouble. Um, so the system was devised, especially in the late empire, whereby the government tried to recover as much gold as possible, um, and, and, and indeed use the gold to pay the soldiers. So you had to pay your taxes in gold, for example. And that was, that was the, max, the main way that the Romans got hold of the gold to remint into new gold coins to pay, pay the army to keep them loyal. I think I've yeah, covered so, most of the topics, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple that tri trip off from that as well. Um, so Donald McRae is curious, did the Romans actively control the quantity of coin and money? You know, oh, well. They and then Nicky Holton is curious, uh, what advice would you have given the ancient Romans to manage their inflation issues? So sort of a double-edged <laughs> there. Well, uh, the, um, I mean, again, it's, 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 it is disputed. To, to what extent the Romans actively tried to control the amount of money or to what extent they were just aware of the consequences. I, 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 think, I think we have um, good evidence that when there was a shortage of coinage, they, start, they, they, they were aware of that, and as we've seen from one or two of the sources I mentioned, and they did increase the amount. And for example, the shortage of coinage that took place when Caesar was mostly in control of Rome in the 40s BC, we know from letters such as the one I quoted about the shortage of coinage, and it's precisely at that time when the Romans start, where they introduced a very large scale gold coinage, and it looks very much like this is introduced to try and ameliorate the problems of the shortage of cash. Whether they tried to moderate to, of course, one of the problems of their system, as indeed with many modern systems, when you're running a bimetallic system, what happens when the relative value of gold and silver changes? Now, it was, it was, it was and, and of course, that was the thing that exercised modern government hugely from the um, early modern period onward. But um, it's less of a problem for the Romans because they were just dealing with one big area rather than lots of different states. Of course, there was an international trade uh, and it looks like they, um, they, they, they probably, uh, as it were, made the gold coinage the principal coin and they weren't quite so worried about whether, whether the silver coin um, had, 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 as it were, equivalent amounts of silver in it, but rather less, so they didn't have to regulate that uh, quite so much. Um, John Sunderland, uh, I think related to this as well, uh, was there any exchange of foreign coinage used in the Roman Empire? Was there, were there other uh, currencies in circulation? Um, no, they, 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 weren't, they obviously weren't allowed in. I mean, the areas around um, the Roman Empire, especially to the east, the, the Parthian and later Sasanian empires, the Persian empires, um, had, had coinages of, of their own. But they are never, they're never found inside the Roman Empire. Ah, uh, and we, so it's and not we, like our Spanish pieces of eight situation. No, in the... no, no. And, and, and we do know that um, the Romans had quite rigorous uh, import controls. For example, if you were importing something like, uh, I don't know, luxuries from India, silk or gems, you had to pay a whopping 25% tariff um, when you entered the Roman Empire. 
so clearly they're very good at controlling their borders and, and hence kept foreign coinage out and indeed the tax system pervaded the whole empire i mean you had to pay another tax when you took uh, goods from one province and to another not not at the same level but much lower level so so the, the whole thing was quite um, um, regulated but of course it had the same it had the same effect that it tended to be a bit more fragmented as a result that things, things didn't travel as much as they would in the, in the modern in the modern world okay um Stephen Murgatroyd uh, has a has a, a somewhat stock comment. It's been mentioned that the euro should not have been introduced until the United Government is in existence, as with the Romans. But um, leaving the politics to one side, what were some of the effects on on accounting and numbers? So we have here uh, James Fleck. Um, did the Roman numeral system hinder financial transactions and understanding of inflation, etc.? And Byron Gilliam is interested in how long did Roman coins remain used as a unit of account? Well, there's a lot of questions there. I mean, one of the puzzling things is about Roman numerals, which, I mean, I don't know how many of the people attending tried to learn Roman numerals when they were at school or whatever. They had the most clunky system imaginable, didn't they? Um, but it's quite a good, because, I mean, only half the... Only half the Roman Empire, the Western bit, spoke Latin and used Roman numerals. The other half, the Eastern half, sort of from Adriatic East, spoke Greek, and they used Greek numbers, which actually were, were very similar to our, our Arabic system, just two two digits. Um, but I think there's no there's no suggestion that uh, they found the um, the counting arithmetical system so clunky that it impeded their um, counting. Um, I think it was just the way they wrote it down um, was very um, complicated. Um, I've forgotten what the other questions were now. Um, um, it was how long were the Roman coins? Well, how, long uh, like, how, how long was it used as a unit of account as opposed to maybe yeah. a circulation? Well, I mean, the, the Roman denarius, for example, lasted from um, about 200 BC until about AD 450. 650 years and, and then there were the late roman gold coin the solidus which was introduced in 300 went on in some form or other for about about the same long period 500 but the coins gradually became more and more debased more and more silver which is why the word solidus ended up actually meaning shilling like the silver coin in, in lsd where, where we started but as i said the words are still with us <laughs> Um, John Sunderland again, just a quick one. Did Romans clip coins? They did, um, and there are quite severe penalties for for it, uh, which we know in some of the Roman law courts, Roman Roman law courts. Um, to to our way of thinking, it's a rather the Roman legal system was rather strange because the the penalty depended on your social status. So if you clipped coins and you were a slave, that was it. You had it. Um, if you were a senator, you might be banished. Um, so that, that was um, that seems a bit socially unjust, even if just. Um, mm. But one of the things, clipping is very interesting because uh, it occurs a lot actually in Britain at the end of the Roman period. Lots of coins were clipped around the edges, so, so, so often you, you you lose the, the legend, you only see the emperor's head. And and this does seem to be related to the end of Roman Britain and the departure of the Roman authorities and army and, and heralds the breakdown in fact of the monetary system that they've introduced 400 years ago.
Hmm. Um, it, it's intriguing here when, we, when we're thinking about the future. Nevertheless, you, you've pulled us up on the third century. Um, our, our famous scholar, Robin Derbyshire, is online, and he's saying the third yeah. century uh, was where there was some severe devaluation, uh, but it was a period of great disruption in the empire, sometimes referred to as the crisis of the third century. Do you have a view as to whether this crisis led to the devaluation or perhaps vice versa? Well, it's again, like, like everything in, in, in academic fields, it's hotly disputed to what extent there was a crisis in the third century. But uh, we, we, we can see that there were obviously military and political crises. Roman emperors never lasted more than a few years. There was quick turnover. Um, and indeed, the, um, one can see that in various ways that the economy of the Roman Empire became more and more fragmented, more and more regionally based than had, had been the case. Uh, I think, I think the, the monetary system has played a part in that. Uh, because the, I think it caused real problems for the Roman Empire to supply the coinage to all, all the parts of the empire that was needed, exacerbating um, the problems. But I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say one, one, one caused the other. So much. I think there's an inter interdependence as you know, as the economic, as the monetary problems begin, so the economic problems begin, and, and they feed off each other. Um, indeed, creating. I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it uh, it, it was in if, if we're in, in monetary terms. There's no doubt it was a crisis of the period. You can just see that from the well, the thing you mentioned earlier, Michael, the graph of the decline of silver. Mm. Mm. Uh, Anthony Abel is curious. He says he has a colleague who's claim who claims it was faster to bank across the Mediterranean with the Middle East and North Africa in the Roman era than it is now by modern banks and telecoms. Um, any thoughts on that? What was sort of the speed of transaction? Yeah, well, that's, uh, I mean, that's nonsense, actually. Um, the, um, I mean, it is true, it is true that the Romans uh, could do paper transactions. It's often forgotten, and people think it was only in hard coin. Um, and, but of course, the evidence for that is quite limited. But uh, we do have, uh, although we don't have direct evidence for the speed of financial transactions, we do know how long um, it took news to get around the Roman Empire, and the the sort of classic way of measuring it is when did news of a new Roman emperor get to particular provinces, and the particular province which we got the most information about is Egypt, where all those papyri have been preserved in the, the dry climate of Egypt, uh, and it shows that well it, it depended on the time of year, but it could take up to two to three weeks the knowledge of a new emperor to reach Egypt, which is uh, quite um, striking because, I mean, if you, if you did something in the name of the wrong emperor, emperor, it might cause you real trouble. So it was very important you get that news as quickly as possible. So I can't believe any financial transaction could, could have taken place any faster than that. No. Um, Paul Tappender, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of uh, work going on with uh, David Graeber, for example's book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, uh, where uh, there's been a lot of puncturing of the myth that Adam Smith perpetrated that, you know, we had barter and then we had coinage. Uh, today, we're looking at a situation where the World Trade Organization estimates 25 to 40% of economic transactions are non-monetary, but that's a problem. I mean, it's, you know, if I babysit your kids for free, it is, is that because we were trying to avoid a monetary transaction? So it's a tough one. But Paul Tappender's curious, did barter run alongside coinage for much of the empire? And if so, any idea how significant it was? 
Well, we do, again, you know, we don't we don't really know. I mean, we do hear occasionally of. Um, not, I wouldn't say so much barter as much as much as uh, as use of other um, high value materials such as gold, perhaps occasionally being used as a form of form of, of, of payment. But um, I mean, it is striking that the um, there is evidence from the most rural um, settlements of Roman Britain, for example, of quite a extensive use of uh, of coinage in, in the late period. And you'd think you'd expect rural small holdings to be the one place, if any, where barter would be most uh, most likely to occur. But even there, we seem to have got evidence of uh, of, of coin use. So I think I think it was pretty. Quite limited, but I mean, I, th I think the pattern of coin use introduced by the Romans, as I was saying in Britain, is probably not not so dissimilar from uh, what, 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 what we were familiar with until very recently. Uh, Donald McRae, any comments on how the Romans executed really large value transactions? Um, well, I mean, partly, partly, partly in cash. Um, that there's a, a large, the largest. Um, Ancient gold coin hoard that was known from was from northern Hilly, northern Italy, consisted of eighty thousand coins. So that would be, you know, if 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 if, if a thousand if one gold coin is one roughly equivalent to a thousand pounds, that's an eighty million pound transaction. It's probably thought that that was actually Caesar's war chest that was lost at one point, um, <laughs> and that's so I think 80, 80 million is quite a big. Some by ancient yeah. standards might be my modern standards. Um, exactly. Now I, I wore a I wore a joke tie today just in honor of of money. Uh, but we have a really good question from Jonathan Brill. Uh, we have monopoly. Did the Romans learn about money at all through games? We um, we, we don't know. I mean, we know they they enjoyed gambling, but there's no surviving. Um, what would it be? Mono, monopolium. Has not survived um, from from antiquity. Sadly, that would have been very very interesting if it had. Now I have uh, two favorite quotes, you know, the, uh, in Latin uh, about money. You know, pecunium non olet, which was Vespasian trying to teach his son about uh, don't be ashamed of the urine tax. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, but uh, but the other one is uh, is from Cicero, who you quoted earlier. So pecunia nervos belli. Uh, you know, basically that money is the soul of, of war. Um, now, there's a great book that uh, Roger Knight brought out almost 10 years ago on Britain against Napoleon, the organization of victory uh, from, I think it was uh, 1793 to 1815. And in that book, he explores the importance of the monetary system in funding the Napoleonic Wars. Um, yeah. was, there, was there a comparable integrated look at that from the Romans, or was it just the money system was almost an externality they had to deal with? Um, no, I think I think it was, I mean, from the governmental point of view, funding the army, as I said, was probably the, mo the most single most important um, aspect of, of, of what they did. And, and it, it has been quite uh, common until recently amongst scholars to argue that most issues were, were intended for military purposes. But I think that's probably a bit of an a bit of an bit of an exaggeration, but um, but but certainly you know if you couldn't if you couldn't afford your wars either internal against other 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 usurpers or external people against the Persians you were in you were you were in you were in trouble, um, and you had to so so it was as important then as it as it is as it is in the more recent period.
Well, as ever with uh, compelling presentations, we're running up against time, but let me try two quick ones if I might. Um, the first one is, uh, is what do you think about the future of coin collecting uh, ah. you know, as a matter given the increasingly cashless society? That's from Dan Feeney. Well, I mean, I, I, I hope that coin collecting does have a future because, I mean, as we touched on earlier, you can form perfectly decent collection for a very, very small outlay. And it's a wonderful way of uh, bringing history to life for people. And when I was, I, mean, I used to work in the British Museum, I'm retired now. And I remember much, much, much agonizing with the trustees and so on. We eventually introduced handling sessions in the gallery where people could actually handle real ancient coins and they couldn't they could hardly believe they were handling real coins and it, it just brought the whole thing um, to life um in, in in fact uh i mean i think probably the erosion of collecting if that's the word hasn't been particularly affected so as far as we know yet by the rise of bank cards it was more has been more affected by i'm afraid the rise of computer games and, and so on and that sort of thing people I'm sure you're aware of yourself and many of your listeners as well tend not to collect things in, in the way that they did, but um, certainly it can be. And I don't know what the price made. There was a gold coin of Brutus, the assassin of um, of uh, Caesar, on sale last week. I haven't looked up the price, but it was supposed to go for four and a half million. So you can, um, so you can, uh, if you're lucky and find something, you can do do well out of it as well. Who needs to gamble on Bitcoin when you can gamble on something you can hold in your hand? That's right. Um, very quickly then, final question for you. What's your favorite quote uh, about money uh, from the Latin oh, period? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I think I, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I really, I don't think I really have one. I mean, my, my, my I'm, I'm interested in all the, all the different, um, different aspects, the way that it permeated and um, ancient, um, ancient society um, and how it could be used as a, a sign of sort of moral decline as well. I, 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 think I, I, I can't really answer the question. I'm sorry. I've just okay. thought I'll give that one notice. Okay. I, I mean, you would agree that uh, there's still a lot of active research going on. This is not a closed uh, question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've alluded to some of the scholarly controversies and they're not, they're not going to go away. But of course, I mean, every, every year coins are found. I don't know if any of the listeners have been lucky enough to find them in themselves. You know, people with metal detectors go out and find things. So it's, it's um, you know, there's always new things being discovered. And as a result, like, like all the best subjects, it's constantly changing, partly because new material is found, but partly, of course, because uh, the questions people ask change from generation to generation. You know, you know, there's interest in the was indeed in, embodied in some of the questions we've had today and the social impact of coinage in the way that people wouldn't have been interested in it you know, two generations ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, sadly, we do have to bring it to a close. So if I could conclude okay. with uh, three quick remarks. Uh, firstly, thanks to our sponsors. Um, I, we really appreciate it that you do allow us to range so widely and freely. Your tolerance is, is, is much appreciated. Uh, secondly, to you, the audience, you've been particularly vibrant today. Uh, we didn't quite get to all the questions, but as I said, Andrew will be sent them all. Um, I think what I, I really picked up today was the, uh, Byron Gilliam has a comment here about, you know, we're looking here at the Milton Freeman, Friedman, it's all a monetary uh, problem or it's all a fiscal phenomenon. 
and uh, this goes back and forth and history teaches us we're still unsure uh, which rules. So I think that's that's been important. Um, but thank you all very much for your contributions. Again, as ever, uh, please just uh, look at the website. But we do, in fact, tomorrow have a very fascinating, uh, slightly historical one as well, where we're going to be looking at Paternoster Square here in London. A little bit local for us, but nevertheless, we thought we'd try two local ones uh, in a week. Um, and very finally, of course, Andrew, uh, our, our very sincere thanks to you. You've been wonderful to come on board to share your erudition. Um, I, I'm conscious that uh, we often say to people, we're looking forward to having you back because they're in some fast moving area, but we would look forward to having you back, but maybe not in a month or two, maybe in a few years, and you can share some of the research that's ongoing, which is really important in terms of informing all of us uh, on still Bowdoin's law, Gresham's law, um, inflation, quantitative easing, et cetera. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're still learning and we appreciate you here uh, teaching us. Thank you. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Gresham will be a fine topic for the future.